eyes to see, uh, ears to hear. We have been uh, in the Gospel of Mark two weeks shy of one year now, about halfway through. In fact, we reach a major turning point in the book in chapter 8. We know well by now that Mark has written his gospel to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the very Son of God. Here's the question. Does anyone in the narrative that Mark is unfolding before us, does anyone get it? (laughs) Better question. Do we get it? You see, from the beginning, Jesus has been doing some rather amazing things. Now, if you've been in church for any period of time, you know lots of the stories that we've been looking at. You've heard them since you were a little tyke in Sunday school. The question is, do you get it? What are you going to do with the preponderance of evidence? You see, I actually have some some good news and some bad news today. The the, the good news is you've you've heard the stories. You've been presented with the rock-solid evidence. The, The bad news is you will be held responsible for what you know. And the more you know, the higher the responsibility, even even the liability. I'll come back to that at the end of our time together. Jesus has been proving conclusively that He is the Christ, the Son of God. He has been doing some amazing things up to this point in His ministry, over to closing in on three years now. For example, He's, he's exercised demons all over the place in rather spectacular fashion, some with a mere word of command as they groveled at His feet. Others weren't even present. He just said it was so, and well, it was so. Oh, with another guy, he, there was this legion of demons, perhaps thousands, that Jesus drove into a herd of pigs. Amazing. Spectacular legend. You must decide. What will you do with the evidence? And then, of course, he healed people of every imaginable disease. Peter's mother-in-law, who had a fever, a leper, a paralyzed man, a, another man with a withered or, or useless hand, a woman with a, with a bleeding issue for 12 years. The, the lame were walking, the deaf were hearing, the mute were speaking. He, he even raised the dead, and this was no mere hearsay. He actually did it. Uh, today, we'll find that he, he restores sight. All of this in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 35, that that when God came, He would would save you. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf uh, will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongues of the mute will shout for joy, and, and, and Jesus has been doing all of that. What will you do with the evidence? There's also all those... Nature miracles, his power over nature, even uh, even the elements, molecular structure, 
if you will. He could calm a storm with a voice of command. He could even walk on the water. He could multiply bread and fish and, and feed thousands. Talk about a fish fry. Amazing, spectacular legend. What is it? What will you do with a mounting evidence? You see, we will see today some different responses to the evidence. Jesus has been doing ministry, teaching, and healing throughout Galilee, even, even beyond. His popularity has risen to unprecedented heights, but, but so also has the opposition. There were different ways to respond to him then and now. We've seen the crowds come to him in great numbers, of course, most, well, seeking healing, but, but also then listening to his amazing teaching. We've heard things that we've never heard before. Others, however, heard his teaching. They saw his miracles, at least the, the results of his miracles, and one enough. <laughs> they rejected him. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the political group, the, the, the Sadducees, the ruling aristocracy. It's amazing. The, these religious and political establishments oppose him most vehemently, and these two institutions will come together very shortly to put him to death, all according to divine plan. The question for you is, what will, what will you do? Accept or reject? read the text today. It's a rather long one. Upon first reading, it will seem somewhat disjointed, but trust me, it goes together, and it might just be what you need to hear today. Mark chapter 8, verses 11 and following say this. Jesus had just sailed across the Sea of Galilee from the eastern shore to the western shore, and the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, listen carefully, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them. He again embarked and went away to the other side. And they, that is the disciples, had forgotten to take bread and and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he, Jesus, was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, and hear the frustration, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you, do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They, they said to him, 12. And, and, and when I broke the, the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and 
They brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. And then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked, the man looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home to his house, or sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Jesus had just finished an extended period of ministry in non-Jewish territory. That means among Gentiles. Here's a map where I've drawn some circles of the places that we've been talking about. Several weeks, if not months by this time, have passed. During this time, he had healed a Syrophoenician woman's daughter. That's a Gentile woman's daughter. He'd healed a deaf and a mute man in Decapolis. That means he was a Gentile. He multiplied bread and fish there to feed a large Gentile crowd who had, by the way, been with him for three days, listening to his teaching, observing his miracles. They had seen the evidence. They had heard the teaching, and, and therefore they glorified the God of Israel. What's it going to take? Now he boards a boat and travels from the southeastern shore on the bottom right of the map there, Decapolis, uh, the Sea of Galilee, and sails west to this Dalmanutha. That's not mentioned anywhere else, both inside and outside of Scripture. Matthew, when he tells this story, he says they landed in Magadan, which is on the western shore, so we suppose that Magadan and Dalmanutha are, are the same place, or at least close by. The point is, they are back in Jewish territory, so when they land, surprise, surprise, the Pharisees come out to greet him. We've met them before, but let me give you a brief bio on these guys. Not exactly sure where they came from. Many think they were descendants of the Hasidim, whose name means the pious ones from about the second century B.C., by Jesus' time, the Pharisees were a religious group, a religious association, very much in the mainstream of Jewish life. And, and they made a point, in fact, they very important to them, of being noticed and admired. In fact, the word Pharisee literally means separated one, and that's exactly what they thought they were. They were separated from and, in fact, superior to, well, common people. And not only did they separate themselves from dirty Gentiles, they separated from common Jewish people on whom they looked with disdain. Admission to the group was strictly controlled. Application was followed by a probationary period in which the applicant had to prove his ability uh, to follow this ritual law. That was also very important, following this set of man-made rules, ritual rules, which <laughs> made them feel superior. Some of you have come from churches like that. Man-made rules that make you feel better than everybody else. A set of rules eventually came to be written through the centuries. Uh, commentaries on the law of Moses, the Mishnah, the Gemara, together formed the Talmud. They were collectively known as the tradition of the elders. These teachings were largely external and they were meaningless observances. They, they were a self-righteous community, these Pharisees, legalistic isolationists who had no regard for anyone outside their, that's important, outside their own 
group. They thought themselves super spiritual, and they were quite confident that God looked upon them very approvingly because of their made-up brand of holiness. So, for obvious reasons, these guys opposed Jesus of Nazareth. He wasn't first one of their number. In fact, he was second, he was one of the common people. Not only a carpenter from Galilee, but he was, he was from Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And as a result, their minds were, were made up from the beginning. I want you to hear that. Their minds were made up. They closed their eyes to the evidence. They, they stopped up their ears. This brings us to the the first point, the, this continued opposition, opposition of the Pharisees. They came out. That's an interesting word. It usually speaks of marching out in military formation. They marched out, and they were going to do war against Jesus. They began to argue. Don't miss that. They began to argue. This was their intent with Jesus because their minds were already made up. They weren't interested in the evidence you can't be the Christ. You can't be the Son of God. Not unlike many today, maybe even some of you. Don't confuse me with his teaching. Don't confuse me with all of the facts. Can't be. Blind eyes, deaf ears. You remember when we first met the Pharisees in this particular book was back in Mark chapter 2. Jesus was eating and drinking with a bunch of tax collectors and, and sinners. These guys did not like that. They got irritated about that. Later in the same chapter, his disciples, horror of horrors, were picking grain um, on the Sabbath. Guys got irritated again. Then in chapter 3, Jesus healed this man, remember, with the withered hand. That's a useless hand. Things seemed like it'd be great, but it was in a synagogue on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees left that day. They left a worship service that day and began to conspire with the Herodians as to how they might destroy or kill Jesus. Their minds were made up. Absolutely amazing. Given that they had just seen Jesus restore a man's hand. Some people, regardless of the evidence, will shut their eyes to truth. They don't like what Jesus has to say, the fact that he infringes on their beliefs or, more importantly, on their way of life, who do you think you are? His teaching, his holiness gets in the way of many who want to live how they want to live, maybe like you. I saw the Pharisees again at the end of chapter 3 when they accused Jesus of performing miracles by the power of Beelzebul, that's a derogatory term to refer to, to, refer to Satan himself. Now, now notice, this means they had to acknowledge his miracles. You couldn't deny the evidence. It was readily apparent. They just decided then to deny the power by which Jesus did the miraculous. Saw them again at the beginning of chapter 7. Delegation of scribes and Pharisees came from Jerusalem to attack, discredit him, but Jesus puts them in their place, accusing them of violating the law of God with their traditions. That did not set very well because people don't like it when the teaching of Jesus comes into conflict with what they believe or their way of life. 
So despite the overwhelming evidence, they oppose him. This time when he returns to Galilee, they're waiting to attack him. They want to argue. They want to discredit him. They show up as a, they, 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 they say, they show up and say, show us a sign from heaven. The implication is, give us some divine sign, then we will believe. <laughs> of course, Mark points out, not really, they're just testing him. The word test there doesn't mean testing for the purpose of approval. They wanted him to fail. In fact, they were sure that he would fail. So, give us a sign from heaven. Think about that. What do you think Jesus had been doing for the first eight chapters of the gospel of Mark? He healed people of every disease. He drove out demons. He calmed storms. He raised the dead. He spoke with an authority and an understanding of the scripture that no one had ever heard before. He was fulfilling prophecies left and right, and they had the audacity to say, give us a sign, then we'll believe. He was the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 35, as I already mentioned, of Isaiah chapter 61, along with every other Old Testament prophecy, which said that the Messiah would come and do exactly what Jesus was doing, but they ignored the miracles. They wanted a different kind of miracle, one that would fit with their approval. You know, I would believe if, fill it in, what's your criteria? What did they mean, show us a sign? They wanted a sign from heaven. Let God's voice come from heaven. Then we'll, oh, that's right, that happened. They were asking for a sign of worldwide magnitude. Do what Moses did when he split the Red Sea. Do what Joshua did when he made the sun stand still for 24 hours in Joshua chapter 10. Do what Elijah did when he called down fire from heaven the Pharisees, you see, wanted some kind of celestial sign to authenticate the message and person of Jesus. But the whole time that they were gazing up into the sky, they were missing all of the good things that Jesus was doing all around them, proving his identity. What about you? What is it that you need? By the way, when Jesus died, there were some celestial things that happen. I mean, the earthquake, the sky turned dark, cosmic disturbances to proclaim that something significant had happened. They didn't believe any of that either. And likely you wouldn't either. What will it take for you to believe? Oh, you want to see it with your own eyes. If, if, if he would just give me his, his own personal appearance. There's a guy, a disciple actually, named Thomas who once said that, which is amazing given the fact that he had seen so many of Jesus' miracles with his own eyes already, which tells me seeing with your own eyes won't always do it. Pharisees had seen the miracles, and they said we don't believe. Thomas had seen the miracles, but one day he said, I won't believe in his resurrection until I see him with my own eyes. And Jesus appeared to him. But stop right there. Do not for a moment think that in doing so, that he will give you a personal sign from heaven, that he will appear to you. The evidence is enough. No, he said to Thomas, 
You believe because you've seen? Thomas, the evidence has been enough. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So here's my question. What will it take for you to believe? At this point, Jesus has had enough with the Pharisees. Their minds were made up. Their eyes were blind to the truth. Seeing, they did not see. Hearing, they would not hear. So Jesus, sighing deeply, all the time that word is used in the New Testament, sighing deeply in his spirit, deeply troubled at their hardened, continued unbelief, basically says, listen to me, that's it. I didn't know God said that. Why does this generation seek for a sign? Later, Paul will remind us that Jews are always looking for a sign. Gentiles, you want intellectual wisdom. This is the way that they, they attack the veracity of Jesus in the Western world. Convince me. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, he's only used that particular formula once before. He's going to start using it over and over. This is getting very serious. Truly, I say to you, you can count on this. Mark 8 it forms this turning point in the book. From now on, truly I say to you, I'm done with the Pharisees. Yeah, he'll battle them again when he gets to Jerusalem on his way to the cross. He's pretty much done with the fickle crowds. From here on out, he's pretty much going to focus on his disciples. Truly. I say to you, no sign. Is that what you're waiting for? No sign will be given to this generation. It's not a bad translation. It certainly gets a point across, but, based, but, but actually, Jesus literally says, if a sign will be given to this generation, it's a Hebrew Semitism, I mean, it's a, a Semitic saying, if a sign will be given to this generation, and he stops right there. The applied completion of the oath is forget about it. It's not going to happen. Is that what you're waiting for? Notice, leaving them. Not, not, not leaving Dalmanutha, leaving them. There is a sense of finality. He leaves them in their sin and in their rejection. Yes, it is true that God's grace has no measure, but don't presume upon His grace because the Scripture is abundantly clear that His patience has its limits. I'll get around to it one of these days. I pray you will have the day. Brings us quickly to our second point. Don't worry, second and third go much more quickly. We move from the opposition of the Pharisees to this continued confusion of the disciples, which is actually a, a bit discouraging. They, they board this boat, the boat they've been traveling all around the Sea of Galilee in, to, to travel north to, the, uh, to Bethsaida. Mark sets the scene. The disciples had forgotten to take bread. They only had one loaf between them, a little piece of pita. It's not enough for 13 men. At some point in this couple-hour journey, Jesus gives them orders. He says, watch out. He says it again, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. Leaven or yeast was a rising agent. It is a rising agent that permeates and affects almost everything. And it's almost always, not always, but almost always used in a negative sense in the Scripture. 
In the parallel passage, when Matthew tells it, Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. And then Matthew tells us he's speaking of their false teaching. In Luke, when he tells the story, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which he tells us is then their hypocrisy. Here it is the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. So apparently there's this ongoing conversation. Beware of leaven. It's out there everywhere. Likely speaking of their, their desire for signs. They just asked for signs. Herod's later going to ask for a sign. They were opposing him. Herod was opposing him. Remember, he put John the Baptist to, to death. Putting it all together, be aware of the hypocritical, unbelieving, false teaching and opposition that's out there. It's everywhere. But these brilliant disciples missed the point altogether and began discussing the fact they didn't have any bread. <laughs> and Jesus, aware of their discussion, begins quizzing them with a series of Questions which frankly reveals his frustration with them. These questions are quite penetrating, and I want you to hear Jesus asking you these questions today. The first five are rhetorical questions. Why, why, why do you discuss that you have no bread? That's not the point. Well, why do you not yet see or understand what is it going to take? Do you, do you too, just like the Pharisees, do you have a hardened or dull heart? And then he asks these two questions. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? These are strong questions. Those last two are quotes from Isaiah 6 that he had applied earlier in chapter 4 to outsiders. I thought disciples were insiders. Are you outsiders too? <laughs> You have been here. You've been with Jesus. You've seen the evidence. I have been saying it over and over. He who has eyes to see, let him see. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Like the Pharisees. Have you hardened your heart to the evidence? This is the question that Jesus has, frankly, for you today. How much evidence do you need before you believe? Keeps going. Looked at these verses last week. Don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Twelve. Don't you remember the, 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 the seven loaves and the 4,000? How many baskets? Seven. Jesus is saying, this has nothing to do with little or no bread. That's not an issue for me. It's not what I'm talking about. They should have known better. You should know better. They were a bit slow, so we can be encouraged. He rounds it out in verse 21. Do you not yet? <laughs> Do you not yet understand? Don't miss those words, not yet. Starting in verse 17. Do you not yet see? He finished, verse 21. Do you not yet understand? Not yet implies something. It implies they will. Keep coming. You will. They're slow, but they'll get there because they'd seen the evidence. And unlike the Pharisees, they had not dismissed it. They just didn't fully get it. Listen very carefully to me this morning. I recognize that that may be where some of you are. 
you've been reading, maybe some believer, Christian encouraged you to read the Bible, so you've done that. You've been listening. I'm thankful for that. Your ears have heard. The evidence has been mounting. You you don't get it quite yet, but, but, but you haven't dismissed it. You know you've got to do something with it. My plea for you this morning is simply this, believe. Believe. The evidence is enough. And allow God to open your eyes to see fully. You see, that brings us to our last point, the opening of blind eyes in verses 21 to 26. Upon first reading, this miracle seems a bit misplaced, or at least it's challenging to make a connection here. Not only that, there's the nature of the miracle itself. It's the first healing of a blind person given in the Gospel of Mark. Then we see Jesus do this spitting thing again. This is only the second time he does that. The first time was at the end of the last chapter when he spit on that and put it on the guy's tongue. He likely does it for the same reason here. This guy couldn't see, so Jesus used another sense, a tactile sense of touch, so the man could participate and understand his own healing. But what I would point out is that this healing of a deaf man and this healing of a blind man that are only recorded in Mark, healing of a deaf man, healing of a blind man, serve as bookends to the story of people having ears to hear but can't hear, (laughs) having eyes to see but can't hear. It's almost as if it's in here intentionally. Add to all of that. It's the only miracle in the Gospels. That, that doesn't happen immediately or completely at first. It, it's actually kind of strange. It happens in stages. What, what is that about? And then, and then we remember the context and maybe light bulbs come on. The Pharisees, they were deaf and blind and they refused. They would not believe. They dismissed the evidence. The disciples also seemingly deaf and blind, but they were still there. Keep coming. Don't dismiss the evidence. They didn't. They they didn't understand. They didn't hear fully yet. They didn't see clearly yet. That's what the second half of the book of Mark is all about. Keep coming as Jesus seeks to convince you. Most believe, as do I, that Jesus did this healing in this fashion, as Mark records it, as an acted-out parable. The blind man was just like these disciples Jesus touched him, and, and, and at first the, uh, he saw men like trees walking around. I'm not sure exactly what that means, what they look like, but it's clear that the man could not see clearly, <laughs> just like the disciples at this point could not see clearly. Maybe just like you can't see everything clearly yet. And Jesus continued his work, touched him again, and the man began to see perfectly. From this point on, this is exactly what Jesus does in his ministry. He reveals himself over and over, teaching after teaching, parable after parable, miracle after miracle. At this point, they could see just not clearly. They could understand just not fully. And again, he will spend the rest of Mark enlightening, or one author said, re-educating these very dull disciples. And that may be where you are. You haven't dismissed it but you haven't fully committed yourself either yet. My question is this. 
Will you please believe? You see, next week, we're going to see the disciples take a major step forward. Jesus and the disciples are going to travel further north, the furthest north that they ever go, to Caesarea Philippi, Gentile territory again. And there Jesus asked them a very important question that I'm going to ask you next week, and that is this question, do you know who I am? The answer to that question, uh, your eternity weighs on the merit of your answer. Do you know who Jesus is? It's time to make a decision. And, 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 and Peter answers for them all. You are the Christ. In Matthew, he adds, you are the Son of God. Mission accomplished. Well, most of the way. They still don't see clearly. They still don't understand why Jesus came. Not yet, but they will. Will you? Will you commit yourself to Jesus as the Christ and believe and begin to grow in your new faith? Because as we close, as I said at the beginning, there is both good news and bad news. From actually being here today, from perhaps being reared in a Christian home, from perhaps being reared in a Christian church, you've heard the truth over and over, and, and you must decide, w- will you believe? You see, I suggest that if you don't, that there, there is greater responsibility, even liability, for you. Why do I say that? Well, it has to do with where this particular miracle took place, Bethsaida. In fact, Jesus did lots of miracles around Bethsaida. That's where the feeding of the 5,000 was. There could be no denying his power, his authority, his miracles, and his teaching. But many did. And so in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this to you. Woe to you, Chorazin, up the street from Bethsaida. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, those nasty Gentile cities, which, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. If they had only seen what you saw and heard what you hear. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Bethsaida, you've seen the evidence. Most did not believe. We have our own list, don't we, of sins that are really, really bad? What's what's on the top of your list? On the top of Jesus' list? Seeing and not believing. That's bad news. You, Capernaum, the base of his operations right there by Bethsaida, you will... Will not be exalted in heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles that occurred in Sodom, are you kidding me? That's at the top of my list. Rape? Miracles that occurred in Sodom, occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. The implication is they would have repented. 
Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That's bad news if you hear and don't believe. You see, with knowledge comes responsibility and liability. These people of these Jewish cities, to include Bethsaida, where this man had just received his sight, had seen Jesus' miracles, but they did not repent. They refused to believe. And Jesus says it will be more tolerable in the judgment for Gentile cities like Tyre and Sidon, like sexually immoral cities like Sodom and Gomorrah, than for you. Because seeing all of the evidence and not believing is serious. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. You say, what, what, are you trying to scare me into believing? I would if I could. But these are not my words. Those are Jesus' words. I am simply communicating truth. So I want to challenge you to consider carefully before you dismiss all that you've heard. Let's stand for prayer.